6th century before Jesus, so 500s or so, in Italy, there was a philosopher and mathematician named Pythagoras. Everybody recognize that name? Um, most of us know him by his law of the right triangle, um, whereby the sum of the squares of two of the sides equals the sum of the hypotenuse. Everybody remember this? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Um, uh, but in truth, that's just a tiny part of what this early Socratic philosopher accomplished. Um, if we lived in Pythagoras' day, we wouldn't have known him by the triangle. We would have known him by the founder and leader of this religious movement called Pythagoreanism. Um, it, was a, it was a religious movement in Italy based on um, the mystical implications of his mathematical findings. Um, Pythagoras believed that the entire universe could be understood in terms of numbers, um, which is kind of fascinating. What's, what's really cool is how close he got on some things. For instance, he believed the entire um, universe and all that is can be summed up with the number three. He thought three was the divine number um, because people come in, a, in three, intellect and emotion and body. All stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Water exists in three parts. Ice, steam, and liquid. Uh, space is made up of three parts, heaven, earth, and hell. And so he he saw that the entire universe could be explained and summed up by the number three, which is he had a very Trinitarian uh, understanding of the universe, which is interesting. He also used um, vibration of certain lengths of string um, with mathematical ratios um, to discover the octave and, and how it breaks up clean. He used uh, the ratio of one to two on the length of string to establish um, the root octave and the ratio three to two to find the fourth uh, in the in, a, in an octave, and the ratio of three to four to find the fifth in an octave, and he 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 thought the one, the four, and the five made the most divine and pleasing um, position of chords in the octave. And I don't have any clue what any of that math means, but I do know 90% of the worship music we sing is a one-four-five um, structure in in an octave scale. I played a lot of worship music in the 90s, and it was GCD in the key of G, like every song, and EAB in the key of E. That was all I could play, and everybody thought I was awesome because I just played guitar all the time, and I knew six chords in two different keys, and I could capo wherever I needed to be to make sure I stayed in those two keys, and I, and, uh, and I was just literally playing the Pythagorean chord structure, which is awesome. Um, he also believed that justice could be explained in mathematical terms. He knew that anything on one side of an equal sign had to equal everything on the other side of the equal sign. There was no way to change that. He said it only makes sense that what we do here has to equal what we get in the afterlife because that's how math works and it would not be mathematically possible for it not to be that way. And so he believed everything had to have a balance and he called that justice, which is fascinating. Not only, not everything he did, though, was uh, weirdly insightful. There was one law in Pythagoreanism um, that no adherent to his faith system um, was allowed to eat beans um, because he himself hated beans. And so not everything was cool and mathematical. Some of it was a little weird, but probably my favorite er uh, element of Pythagoreanism was the divine light bulb. Um, he believed that the absolute closest we could get to the gods 
um, was the moment of revelation or discovery. Um, that aha moment. He felt like uh, when he would work on a math problem and he would get it, like finally get it, that ah moment was, was felt so good and so right, like the whole universe was in line, that he said that has to come from the gods. He believed that that was a God moment to get that aha, like scratching an itch, that ah, now I get it moment. He said it was a purely beautiful moment that had to come from the gods. The closest I can get to that aha moment today is... Uh, it, you know how when we were kids, our parents used to go, you know, it's not, I had to walk to school in the two feet of snow, uphill both ways. You know that whole, like, you don't even know what tough is, you know, kind of thing. My version of that today is, is when my, when my kids were trying to think of who sang a song or who starred in that one movie or, or what that one little fact or detail is. And while we're still just beginning to chew on it, my kids head for Google. They're like, oh, it was this guy. And I'm like, see, when I was a kid, we just had to sit in that unknown for days or weeks sometimes. Like, you don't know what it's like to have that scratch, that tip of the tongue scratch in the back of your brain and just have to stay there, just have to live in it. I was like, you know, we didn't have Google where you got to just know everything and you never had to sit in the unknown. Like, and, uh, and so they're like, oh gosh, that would be terrible. Well, yeah. We had to, if you didn't know who sang a song, you had to just listen to the radio for days, hoping the DJ would play the song and tell you who sang it. Then it was like, ah, like that Pythagorean moment, like, oh, for that's who did it. Whew. Yeah. My senior year in high school, I'm sitting at the the lunch table, kind of in my own world, just eating my food and daydreaming, I guess, and uh, completely paying no attention to the goings on around me and all of a sudden I burst out laughing just like all by myself and everybody thought I'd lost my mind and the reason was I had always heard the stupid joke what's black and white and red all over and I heard the answer and it was a newspaper and I just didn't get it I was like I've never seen a red newspaper that makes absolutely no sense you got to understand I was not a good and still am not a good speller I, you know and so I'm like I've seen black and white newspapers I've never seen a red newspaper this ju- this is the stupidest joke now, I haven't even seen a red catalog like I've never even seen a you know millennials if you don't know what that is a catalog was when they used to print Amazon on real paper they used to just put it on paper for you but this joke never made sense to me and uh and I'm sitting there, my senior year, at the lunch table, and I go, red all over, R-E-A-D, red all over. People read it all over. Holy crap, that's a great joke. Like, laughing at myself, and it felt like, I think I gained 5% of my brain capacity that day. Because since fourth grade, I've been chewing on that joke somewhere. It was just itching in the back of my head somewhere. I freed up all that RAM that day when I was like... Oh, that's what that joke means. And I think Pythagoras would get it. He would be like, yes, that's the gods right there. That's how that works. Well, today we're going to talk about that light bulb. I'm not here to preach Pythagoreanism. That's not what we're doing today. We're talking about the light bulb moment today. And we're in week four of our series titled At Jesus um, where we're looking at some of the major events in Jesus' life that our Savior might have posted to Instagram if he lived today. These are the moments that we're really familiar with in his story. And because about we talk about them so much, 
um, it's fun to look at them and say, these are the big moments. These are the ones that Jesus would have selfied and hashtagged and posted. And today's is maybe the most frequently quoted scripture uh, in the Bible. Um, uh, in week one, we talked about uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, including his baptism, his time in the wilderness, and, and the beginning of his kind of traveling ministry, his preaching. And I would have, uh, I would have tagged this Jesus' like first day of school picture, like begin, hashtag beginnings, you know. And in week two, we, took, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and how in two back-to-back stories, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, hashtag no filter, in one revelation, Jesus is this suffering Savior talking about the cross, talking about what he was going to have to endure. And in the very next story, he was the glorified king shining on a hill. And we found that both are fully and completely Jesus, and we must accept him as both. And then last week, we looked at these two stories that, about Jesus and how oddly they fit together. John put a story about how Jesus does an almost meaningless miracle just to help a family avoid embarrassment. And then he puts that back to back with this deeply messianic story about Jesus defending and cleansing the temple, fulfilling this eschatological prophecy in the process. You couldn't get much bigger than this moment. So so John puts together this weird miracle that Jesus does just for a family that really has no eternal import, back to back with this miracle of him fulfilling this huge chunk of the Old Testament. It's almost like John is introducing us to this Jesus who's the guy you want on your side every day, day in and day out, and also the guy who will kick your butt and convict you and challenge you and push you to be more like God. And I and of course I believe that's exactly what John is doing. Well, this week we're looking at maybe the most famous and quoted passage in all of scripture, which if I'm honest is not much fun for me, because what else could be said about John 3.16, right? I mean, it's, there have been so many sermons preached on this. But we're in the lectionary for Lent, and this is the passage we have, so we're going to treat with it one way or the other. Our passage happens in the context of this nighttime conversation that Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Um, in the first century, most conversations that happened in the daytime in, in public places were used for open debate. They, in other words, no one came into that space uh, with their hearts and minds turned toward learning. They came into that space um, to debate and to challenge and to kind of show their side to be right. And I'm sure everyone today is acutely aware that, that learning is far more than being exposed to good information. Um, there's a particular posture of the heart that um, that we have to get into in order to learn. Uh, and no one in the first century would have had that posture in the public place. In the public square, you were very aware of everybody else that was listening. And, and these are the moments we see the Pharisees challenging Jesus, asking him these deep philosophical questions. And Jesus would would answer with, with other questions. And it was, it was this very public, very... Um, uh, debate-oriented engagement. Um, so to actually teach somebody something, to actually learn, you usually got together at night. Oftentimes there would be a big debate in the public square, and then you would go up to somebody and go, could we talk tonight? And it, it basically meant, I, I have more questions, and I actually want to, to hear your answers and not just challenge you publicly. Um, to, actually, to actually teach somebody something 
um, in a public place would have been almost as ludicrous as teaching somebody something over Facebook. Um, the only benefit of the first century is they knew that. I don't think we've learned yet that you don't ever actually teach anything over Facebook. We're still trying. Um, the first century knew that was not where the real teaching and learning happened. So the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night doesn't mean it's this weird, sneaky, clandestine um, thing where he's hiding from the scrutiny of his cronies. Um, it most likely means that he has some genuine questions um, that he's seeking genuine answers to. That this is a very real conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. So you can't put the normal like tension and animosity that happens in the public square between Jesus and the Pharisees into this conversation. It's it's probably a very genuine talk. Today's passage happens in the context of a very real talk between Jesus and this Pharisee. The lectionary this year actually picks up like halfway through that conversation. And so it might feel a little awkward, but we're going to start in verse um, 14 of John 3, if you're following along. It says, and, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son of the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they're doing what God wants. This is the word of the Lord. Now, today's passage sounds like it kind of comes out of nowhere, but it's building on um, Nicodemus coming to Jesus and basically telling him that he and all the other Pharisees know that Jesus must come from God. Because how else could he do these amazing miracles? And then Jesus honestly begins to answer a question that Nicodemus never really gets around to asking. He's like, but do you really believe that? Do you really believe I came from God? Jesus starts to talk about um, the kingdom of God, and, and he says these couple of phrases that we've grown so familiar with, stuff like, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, these phrases that now so much hinges on. And Jesus begins to basically answer the question that Nicodemus doesn't ask, but by, I mean, the question is, who are you? Who are you? We know you come from heaven, that's it, but who are you? This was a big question to Jews in the first century. Nicodemus never actually asks it outright, but Jesus knew that that was the question that Nicodemus really wanted to answer. Who in the world are you? And Jesus begins to answer that question. First, just before uh, today's passage, he says, the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Now, to a Jew, this phrase, Son of Man, was, was, was loaded. This was a very big phrase. It pointed back to so many prophetic writings. And so much of the expectation and hope that the Jewish people had for a deliverer. And the statement that he, that, that he came down from heaven, this is an idea we've grown really familiar with. We're really comfortable with this idea that Jesus came down from heaven. But this would have obviously been a catastrophically new idea to a Jew of the first century, to Nicodemus, that Jesus would have come down from heaven 
But as new and weird as it is, Jesus then goes into this weird bit about the snake in the wilderness. He says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, just in case you don't know um, this story and it's, this sounds a little bizarre, this comes from the Exodus story. This comes from when the Israelites were in the wilderness. Um, this actually takes place in Numbers chapter 21, and it's a fairly quick read, so we're going to do it. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live uh, will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by the snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. So the people of Israel have grown tired of the wilderness. They began to get impatient and complain about God. They even went so far as to say, we hate this horrible manna. So not only were they complaining about their current situation, they're complaining about the way that God was providing and taking care of them. And this is interesting because there's no doubt about God's existence in this story. Like we're, we're, we're used to like atheism being the biggest um, challenge to, to faith today, uh, the biggest enemy of God. Like, um, like we forget about the possibility of completely and utterly believing in God and yet not trusting him. Uh, for us, relationship with God is simply the fact of either we believe in him or we don't believe in him, uh, as if either God is real or he's not real. And if you believe he's real, well, that's the whole ballgame. And, and in this story, that's not the case. In the wilderness in Numbers 21, that, that was very, very different. They were waking up every single morning to the miraculous provision of God. There was just manna um, on the ground. And they would scoop it up every single morning and, uh, and cook it. And the Bible says it tasted like honey cakes, which always makes my mouth water. I don't know what a honey cake tastes like, but it sounds fantastic. So there's no doubt of God's existence going into this story. These are not atheists. These are people that completely, utterly, and totally believe in God and have the evidence of his existence in front of them every single night. Everybody believes in God in Numbers 21. But that's not the same as trusting God, is it? In Numbers 21, as they stood in the wilderness saying, you brought us out of Egypt to kill us. There's no food or drink here, and we hate this horrible manna. They believed in God, but they did not trust his character. And so what does God do? He sends snakes to people. Now, I actually spent quite a bit of time on this piece of the story. It's a little bit weird. Um, And to me, this sounds like my mom and dad growing up. Um, the people originally complained, their original complaint was, you brought us out of the wilderness to kill us. And it almost sounds like God goes, no, this is what that would look like. <laughs> like, be honest, how many of you have ever said to your kids, knock it off or I'll give you something to cry about? Have you, anybody? How many of your parents said it? Like, be real. Was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. This was one of my mom's favorites. She's actually listening today. Hi, mom. I love you. <laughs> 
It's almost like they cry out to God about their condition. He's like, hey, knock it off or I'll give you something to cry about. And then he gave them something to cry about. (laughs) Seriously, though, what I honestly think happens here um, is significant and it sounds so much like us. I believe God, what actually happened is God lifted his kind of overshadowing protection of the people of Israel for just a little bit. I did some research and found that the Egyptian adder um, is one of the uh, most venomous um, snakes um, in the world. And it lives in the desert of that area, along with about 12 other breeds of very venomous snakes. There are ancient historical accounts and even like some hieroglyphic drawings of the desert floor writhing with snakes. There were so many um, snakes in the Egyptian desert in that day that, that uh, people have recorded looking like the entire desert floor was writhing. Um, there were so many. Incidentally, this is why you'll see nomads um, and their camels with all the dangly, rattly things hanging off their camels because you were trying to scare the snakes ahead of you to get out of the way before you bumped into them. It was, uh, it was, it was a very dangerous, um, environment. And so for two to three million Jews to be living in the desert, it would have been, from what I understand the story of the Buddha, very, very rare for them not to have a major snake problem, for them not to be constantly battling these desert snakes. So in the desert, in the days of the Exodus, that would have been a regular problem. And so they complain about the way God is caring for them and protecting them and providing for them. And I think what he does is just steps back. And obviously, you know, what I love about the story is it's being told by the humans who went through it. And so what else would they say but God sent snakes? The Lord has sent poisonous snakes among the people. And maybe God did send them. Or maybe he simply stepped back and allow them. But doesn't this sound like us, we complain about the restraints that we feel like God has placed on us. We balk about his provision. We assume he's abandoned us. And then the second he actually does step back and give us our own way, we cry out like, like we're being punished and God is judging me and he's, he's pouring out all this, this wrath on me. We're like, we don't want these things God's way. And he says, fine, I'll, I'll let you do it your way. And then we're all of a sudden, God has sent snakes to punish me. These people are very, very human, and I love that. So as the people are being bit by these snakes, <laughs> has anybody ever tried to hold a one-year-old in a pool? Like, this is the picture I get. You're, trying to, you're sitting in the pool talking to somebody, you got a one-year-old, and he's like, let me go. I want, I want, and he's like pushing against you and like writhing to get out of your arms. And it's like, it's like wrestling, you know, a grown-up just trying to keep. And there's part of you that wants to go, fine. See how you do in the water. Like every time I've ever done that to my kids, they no, I'm kidding. I don't. I don't even put my kids in the water. But it's like a wrestling match trying to keep them in, and what you they don't realize is if you let go of them, they drown. That's what I feel like's happening here. God is holding these people, and they're kicking and squirming, and they want out so bad. And and finally, he goes like, okay, let's see how you do. Let's see how you do in the water by yourselves. And the Israelites begin to panic because they realize they can't swim. And so they turn back to God. And God tells Moses to make this gold snake and lift it up on a pole. And whoever looks at it will be healed of these snake bites. 
Well, in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus uses this well-known story as a metaphorical answer to the question Nicodemus wants to ask. Who are you? I'm just like the snake in the wilderness. People have squirmed out of God's protecting embrace and gotten themselves into all kinds of a mess. And even though God loves us and showers us with manna and all manner of provision, we fight to free ourselves from his love and we find ourselves surrounded by snakes. And Jesus says, nothing has changed. God still wants me or God still wants to save you from yourself. Only this time the Son of Man will be lifted up once and for all. And this leads to maybe the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I actually had trouble reading that in the New Living because it's so like crammed in my head the way I learned it that I have to like focus when I read it or I'll start quoting it. But what's ironic is even though this is the most read verse in the Bible, scholars actually argue about this all the time. Um, because most scholars don't believe that this is what, that Jesus said this to Nicodemus. Um, in most of your Bibles, this will be read as though Jesus is saying it. In the Greek, there's no quotation marks. Um, there's no way to know exactly when somebody starts talking and stops talking. There's this little preposition they use to indicate somebody's beginning to talk. This is a quotation, but there's no, there's nothing to mark the end of a quotation. So we always know when a quotation starts, but we don't always know when it ends. And so most, um, like Bible translators and scholars believe that this is John offering like um, like his kind of interpretation of of what Jesus and Nicodemus had just talked about. But by the time they started kind of uncovering those pieces of the Greek language, it was already read in almost every Bible. It would have been too controversial to go back and say, Jesus didn't actually say this. So it, and it doesn't really matter whether Jesus said it or whether John said it. It's scripture. And so it's absolutely true. Um. And the only reason I bring this up is because this is the, like the perfect explanation or exposition of this weird snake story. Like, it's like John steps in and goes, and Jesus says, I'll be lifted up like that snake. And John says, and here's why, because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And when you look back at the story, God is caring for his people as they want to be free from him. They question his character. They, they regret following him. And people tend to get all caught up in the fact that God sent snakes. And John is going, no, you're missing the point. God sent salvation. The people asked for the snakes. They asked to be free. They asked to, for God to let them go so they could try and swim. So God did. And they couldn't. And so he saved them. God has no desire to destroy the Israelites. He was caring for the Israelites. He, he was sending a cloud every day to protect them from the sun. He sent a pillar of fire to warm them during the cold desert nights. He rained manna to feed them every single day. The Bible says in 40 years their clothes didn't wear out and their shoes didn't get destroyed and break down. God did not want to destroy his people. He wanted to save them. Sounds like Jesus saying, like Moses was saying, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. Save the world through him. There is no judgment against those who believe in him. And this is what I love about this passage. Jesus answers the question, who are you? And the answer is, I am here to do good. I am here to save. 
And it's so black and white here. We make it complicated. We make it this whole big religion. But Jesus answers the question very simply. I am here to save. We've noticed you come from heaven, but who are you? What matters is I'm here to save. I'm just like that snake on the pole. I'm here to save you. No hiding, no riddles, no crazy hoops to jump through. Whoever believes me is saved. Have you ever noticed how much time we spend trying to figure out if God is real? Or if we have settled that big question in our hearts and we spend all our time trying to convince ourselves and others that he's real? And underneath all of this frustration that, that is this frustration that God won't just make it clear. We always, we always, it always seems like he's hiding and making it so ambiguous and cloudy and, and we get so frustrated. Why won't he just make himself clear? And I would like to submit this morning that this is simply not the case. I think God is and always has been open and authentic and that his desire is to be self-revealing. Immediately after freeing people from Egyptian slavery, God led them to a mountain and, and he gave them commands. Actually, it was a covenant. like a, God promised a certain number of things if the Israelites would promise a certain number of things. And we look at this agreement that they made together and we call it the law. It seems like a list of commandments and rules. But here's the deal. It honestly feels heavy, like God has so many rules. It's, it's so heavy to carry and, and keep straight all the stuff God expects from us. But here's the deal. Every Israelite standing at Mount Sinai was born and raised in Egypt. Every single one of them grew up in a place where archaeologists have found over 2,000 Egyptian gods on record. In that day, there was no such thing as an atheist. Everybody believed in the gods in some way. Everybody believed that the gods ran things. The sun came up because a god made it come up. It rained on your crops because a god allowed it to rain on your crops. You had babies because a god granted that you would have babies. Everything that happened, good or bad, was at the hand of a god. The problem was, in that system, that everybody believed that this is what gods did. But no one had any idea why the gods did this. You had no way of knowing what made the gods happy. The gods were these arbitrary runners of the universe, and you had no idea what they wanted. You had no idea how to make them happy or what made them angry. All you knew was you could be blessed or punished at the slightest provocation. So you, when you had poor rain on your crops and your crops were dying, you had to guess what you did to make the gods so upset. And so you would offer extra sacrifices, and, and, and if, you, if it began to rain, you would assume you finally made the gods happy. You had no idea why the gods were angry to begin with. You just know you finally made them happy. So you just had to scramble all the time to figure out what it was that, that appeased the gods. So just imagine like a three-year drought and everyone's getting so desperate, they're doing terrible things and you're offering every sacrifice you can think of and someone in their desperation sacrifices a child and it begins to rain. 
And from that point on, you just assume my God wants child sacrifices. Can you see how these horrible things can begin in that kind of an environment? You're just constantly just trying to figure out what pleases the gods. Nowadays, meteorologists would have said a week early, hey, it's going to rain in a week. Don't kill that kid. It's getting ready to rain. But in 1500 BC, everyone just assumed the gods occasionally want child sacrifice. That's what made it rain. So picture yourself living in a time when everything in your life is run by a fickle set of gods who obviously demand a great deal of you and have the power to crush or bless you with the snap of a finger. And you live on religious eggshells, hoping, literally praying that you don't do something to offend these cosmic bullies. And to top it all off, you have zero idea what makes them happy. And into that horror of, of, of life comes a God who says, please, let me tell you exactly what I expect of you. And exactly what you will receive if you do these things. No more guessing. I will tell you what it, what it looks like to please me. I will tell you what makes, what makes me happy. And you don't have to make arbitrary, weird sacrifices to appease me. When you break one of my guidelines, here's how you make atonement. I will spell it out for you. I want you to know who I am. It was unheard of in that day for a God to come and say, this is exactly who I am. This is exactly what I want from my people. Can you see how revolutionary that would have been in that culture? We read the law and we're like, there's so many rules in it. So complicated and so strict. When Moses read this covenant to the people, they jumped at the opportunity to be part of this divine relationship. And the scripture says, and all the people said, we will be God's people. They loved this idea. This felt like grace to them. A God who, who actually tells us what he wants. An authentic God who's real and open about who he is. In Deuteronomy, as Moses is going over the covenant with a, with a new generation of Israelites, who were getting ready to go into the promised land from the wilderness. The Jews who had heard the original law at Sinai had all died off because they had offended God. And so they died in the 40 years of wandering. And so Moses is making this covenant with the new generation of Israelites who are getting ready to take the promised land. And he says stuff like this. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all of his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you above all the other nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. This is the stuff that everyone alive at this time knew that the gods did. Only this God was open enough to tell you exactly how to get him to do these things. No secrets. And there was the flip side. If you refuse to listen to God and do not obey all of his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and your crops will be cursed. 
The offspring of your herds and flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you'll be cursed. And this sounds super harsh and strict to us. Like, why would God go around cursing people? Have you ever said or thought the phrase, what do you want from me, God? Anybody ever, am I the only one? Don't leave me up here by myself. Yeah. We all have a Bible that tells us. And yet we still ask the question all the time. Imagine if you literally had no idea what the gods want. You don't have a Bible. You can't look it up. You have to guess. And yet you know that gods hand out these curses all the time. This is what gods do. You just have no idea why. And in comes a God who actually discloses what you have to do to avoid this. This did not look like a threat to the original hearers. They said yes to this covenant without hesitation because a God who is authentic was unheard of. (laughs) How many of you, be honest, have found my tendency toward honesty and self-revelation a little bit refreshing from what you've, you've seen from church leaders before? I have to be honest, the way I tell my stories and the way I try to be honest about my weakness and shortcomings is a complete and utter gamble. <laughs> I have I have no idea if if I tell Esther every single week they're going to chase me out of the church this week. I know it for sure. No way I can tell this story and not be fired. But I've just determined to be me. And if you find that even a little bit refreshing today... Imagine how relieved the Israelites must have felt to follow a God who was open and honest about who he was. Follow a God where there was no guessing. In fact, Moses wrapped up his reading of the covenant to this new generation of Israelites this way. He said, this covenant I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It's not kept in the heavens so distant that you must ask who will go to heaven and bring it down so we can hear it and obey. It's not kept beyond the sea so far away you must ask who will cross the sea and bring it to us so we can hear it and obey. No, no, no. The message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your hearts so you can obey it. Now, listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and and disaster. This is, this is not too hard. God has revealed it to you. I know we tend to look at the law like it's so complicated and overbearing. To the, uh, open, the ancient Israelites, this was beautifully open and authentic. In the midst of this revelation of his character, God gives his expectations to the people. Moses breaks down the whole thing to a choice. Life or death. Because you know now. You know now. Prosperity or disaster. And this is the same exact story that Jesus or John is telling in John chapter 3. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God, God's light came into the world. His revelation came into the world. But people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. 
All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. You can almost hear Moses' voice in Jesus' words. I offer you this day light or darkness, eternal life or judgment. If you will do every word of this covenant, you will have life and light. And what is this covenant? Believe. Believe Jesus. John put it out as plain as I can imagine in John 6. John, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. That's the covenant. See, even though Moses gave the law and every Jew alive at the time jumped at the chance to serve a God who would actually reveal himself and his desires, the people broke their into the deal. And they twisted and convoluted God's Torah and this beautiful revelation of God's heart of love and justice got lost. And his people served other gods and they hurt each other and they took advantage of the poor and the downtrodden and they failed to reveal the heart of God to all the people around them. God was not done trying to reveal his heart. God was so determined for people to see him and know him. He was so bent on being open and authentic about who he was and what he demands that he went to the ultimate extreme. It was as if God said, if I can't tell them who I am and them understand me, then I will show them who I am. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 says it like this. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. I've titled this message, Hashtag Twins. This, is the ha- this hashtag is used 30 million times on Instagram. It's the one you use when like a mom and daughter dress the same. Hashtag twins. Or if two people just accidentally wear the same shirt to work one day, you take a selfie. Hashtag twins. Or something like that. Philip one day is asking Jesus. All the disciples are sitting around Jesus. And Philip is like, show us the father. Hashtag twins. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Hashtag twins. I believe that God has, since the garden, been trying to reveal himself to people. He's not hiding. He's not cagey. God is open and authentic. As open and as authentic as you could ask for. He spelled it out to the Israelites. I want you to serve me because I made you to serve. And if you don't serve me, you will serve something that will hurt you. So serve me. I want you to, to, to live with justice and mercy. I want you to care for the poor and for the foreigner. I want you to, to encourage hard work, but also help people have a second chance. It was called a jubilee in the Old Testament. When they blow it. Above all else, I want you to love God and love people. As people lost sight of that message, God sent prophets to remind them what God had said. And when they wouldn't listen to those prophets, when those voices were silenced, God decided to come and show them himself in the flesh. 
God does not hide. He's quite authentic and open. So how do we respond to this? As John records Jesus' kind of authentic self-revelation to Nicodemus, he uses the metaphor of light and darkness. The light bulb. God turned on the light bulb. Pythagoras believed that that light bulb moment was from the gods, and maybe he was close. Jesus is the full picture of God in broad daylight, as it were. All confusion and convolution removed. God just lit up for all to see. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. We've been focusing this Lent on the nature and character of Jesus in every story. And I've been asking to read the Gospels through this Lent season. And honestly, I, I think that as we do that, we are looking at God in the most open and authentic revelation of himself. He's the one who frees condemned adulterers. He's the one who touches the people everyone else runs from. He's the one who included women in his circle and blesses the children that everyone else calls distractions. He's the one who heals the broken. He's the one who gives forgiveness to people. Even when they don't ask for forgiveness, when they're looking for healing, he forgives them. He's the one who frees all those who are oppressed. He's the one who jumped up and down with excitement when his friends were excited. And he's the one who wept at his friend's tomb. He's the one who allowed himself to be baptized for you and for me. And he's the one who cares about your dinner party and also demands your holiness. He's the one who shines on the mountaintop and the one who is willing to suffer terribly on the cross. So you wouldn't have to. The one who, from that place of torture, begged God to forgive the ones who were hurting him. Do you want to know what God looks like? Don't guess. He showed you exactly who he is. And all we have to do is believe that. I barely do apologetics anymore. It used to be what, like the center of my world, that trying to prove ultimately that God is real. I still find it fun, and there are some amazing evidences for the existence of God and the validity of Scripture. But every time I do it, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to prove it so I don't have to believe it. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it seems to me like that, that Jesus asked me to believe him. He said, this is who God is. Believe me. And I'm going, but if I could just have a little, a little more evidence. If, if I could just give that an answer to that one kind of indisputable, uh, that indisputable answer to that one question that those people keep asking, and Jesus is like, or, or you could believe me. That's what he wants from us. It really is that simple. As simple as looking at a snake on a pole. Anyone who looks is healed. And when we get that, it's like finally understanding the punchline to a joke you never understood before. So as we consider our response, I want to lean into this metaphor of light and darkness. Jesus said some would would draw to the light 
The completely open self-revelation of God's character in his son, Jesus. And others would prefer to keep God vague and distant and complicated and shadowy. And what's ironic is the reason some would rather not actually see God in Jesus. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near for fear their sins will be exposed. Standing in the light is scary. Standing in the light means you will be seen. Standing in the light means, like it or not, you're forced to be authentic too. As God is shining, this is who I am, and you step into that, you have to say, and this is who I am. Jesus says in this passage that authenticity goes both ways. God reveals himself in Jesus, and as we come to Jesus, we must face that light. We reveal ourselves back to him. We stand in the light, all of our sins exposed and vulnerable. From the moment humans have sinned, they've hidden from God. When God called Adam's name in the garden, Adam was hiding. We have not stopped hiding. Please don't do the thing where you get frustrated that God won't just reveal himself and come out of hiding. Because we are the ones who do the hiding. Not God. He's been revealing himself from the beginning. So here's how I would love to respond to this message. First, believe Jesus. <laughs> believe in Jesus. It's, it's that simple. Believe that Jesus is the very glory and character of God on display. And second, come out of hiding. Be real. Conf- confess your sins to God. Be open and authentic with God. Maybe even get crazy and talk to someone else about who you are. You don't even have to focus on your sins if you don't want to. Tell someone what scares you and what makes you angry and what motivates you. Be authentic with someone. We value and drive authenticity here at OTCC, not because it's a new, cool, millennial buzzword. We strive to be authentic because we believe that God is authentic. and We desire to be like God. Lent is supposed to be a season of confession and repentance. So for the last couple of weeks before Easter, lean into that. Take a gamble and be real. Combat the darkness by turning toward the light. So as we go to the table in response to this message, make a commitment today to share yourself with God and with at least one other person. Jesus led the way. Let's follow.